from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. Well, you're also, of course, getting hit from the other side. Uh, those that are saying you're being too harsh on the border, requiring that uh, migrants seek asylum in, in, in a third country first, uh, the, the, this, these penalties for those who cross illegally. Um, the ACLU is suing uh, uh, to challenge that. And I want to read what one of the lead lawyers for the ACLU said. The Biden administration's new ban places vulnerable asylum seekers in grave danger and violates U.S. asylum laws. We've been down this road before with Trump. The asylum bans were cruel and illegal then, and nothing has changed now. So they're saying that this is effectively Trump policy. Absolutely incorrect. Disagree with every aspect of that statement. This is not an asylum ban. We have a humanitarian obligation as well as a matter of security to cut the ruthless smugglers out. That is that is a responsibility uh, of government. And we are doing that. And it is not. And John, it is not a ban at all. Now, wait a second, Secretary Mayorkas. Of course, there's a ban because Title eight says they're a ban. Don't you understand that the ACLU is not interested in anything civil? They don't believe in American liberties? My gosh, they don't even believe in America. They believe in open borders. I don't know what the hell happened to this organization, but it's pretty awful. They believe in open borders. They believe that people who are not citizens have rights and people who are citizens should shut up and be told what to do. But there is no argument that Title VIII has a component that involves a ban. Why would you tell people no when you're the guy? Secretary Mayorkas, who stood in front of a camera and told people, you told people that they would be banned. You told them that if they did not cross in a port of entry, there would be a ban. Starting tonight, people who arrive at the border without using a lawful pathway will be presumed ineligible for asylum. We are ready to process and swiftly remove people without a legal basis to remain in the U.S. Do not believe the lies of smugglers. People who do not use available legal pathways to enter the U.S. now face tougher consequences, including a minimum five-year ban on re-entry and potential criminal prosecution. We are prepared for this transition and will enforce our laws. Thank you. No, thank you for enforcing our laws. We really do appreciate it. It's about time, except you just went on ABC to say, eh, we're not so interested in the enforcement. And it turns out that the enforcement is to some weird discretionary policy that you can invent at any second. Let's break down what's happening over the last 72 hours. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today, it's good to be with you. 833-GOT-TONY, 833-468-8669. Let's walk us through what's going on, because what you're going to be hearing top line is that, oh my gosh, look at look at the number of, of people crossing the border. The number's gone down. Clearly, Biden's doing a great job. How about the tactical border force from the Texans? 
How about all the armed men and women you got on the border? How about the areas where you actually set up razor wire fences? That could have something to do with it. Someone had asked me, why isn't Biden stopping Texas from doing this? Because right now it makes Biden look good. So why would he stop them from doing it? He can then blame them later and still pretend things are going great. Title 42 ends. Title 42 came into play. And it's not that it was new. It's something that existed. It's that when the CDC says, hey, we've got this disease and we have to deal with it. Title 42 says because of this health issue. We don't have to go through the asylum process. We can simply walk people out the door. You came in, you're out. You came in, you're out. Health issues out. Health issues out. Some people argued that was actually um, not effective because it was just a revolving door. People would try and just come right back in again and hopefully get a shot because there was no penalty. As opposed to Title Eight. Title VIII is not new. Title VIII has existed since the 40s. And Title VIII is what we used regarding people who came to the country, trying to get into the country, before Title 42. Title VIII has rules and regulations about asylum claims, etc., and not coming through lawful ports of entry, which could lead to bans. At least a five-year ban on reentry and potential criminal prosecution for repeated uh, attempts, including if repeated attempts, you, it would be up to a 20-year ban for coming in into the country. So this would seem to be a deterrent that has people interested. Well, wait a second. Now, if you come in illegally, you're banned from the country. This is pretty interesting. We should. Why? Why weren't we doing this? We weren't doing this because Title 42 moved faster. The argument now about Title 8 is that is is not that it doesn't have a, a level of strength to it. It's that it can be used in a very, I guess the word would be discretionary kind of way. You could decide that this person doesn't have a proper claim. You go back five-year ban. You can decide this other person has a proper claim just because you like their smile. The idea of the claim seems to have a massive level of discretion to it. And it seems that Title VIII does not allow for a uniformity if in the hands of people who move ideologically. The ideology of the Biden administration was made clear when they tried to engage this concept of parole. In order to deal with what they believed was going to be a massive influx of people, they worked tirelessly to move people out of either shelters or or places where, where people here illegally or people trying to come into the country are being held. And what they did is they moved in a way to try and say, you do not need a court date. We will simply put you out on parole, immigration parole. And uh, look, call in and when we figure it out, we'll get you a court date. But for now, you know what? Don't worry about it. It's fine. It, it's, it's cool. It's good. You're, 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 you're totally all right. Translation, 
Get out of here, you crazy kids. Don't bother us. We won't bother you. Welcome to America. Have a nice day. That's what the administration wanted to do. A judge, U.S. District Judge, by the name of T. Kent Weatherell, issued a what's called a show cause order. What's going on here? What are you doing here? As a federal judge out of Florida, you can't just be releasing people. You know what? We're putting a stop to this. You can't engage these parole orders. It didn't stop the White House from issuing approximately 2,500 paroles after the court order of a temporary restraining order. That according to the Washington Times reporting. Corinne Jean-Pierre, sorry, Cringe Jean-Pierre said this ruling sabotage. Oh, let me just say on the ruling uh, that you just uh, you just laid out to me. Um, so look, the way we see that it's sabotage. It's pure and, and simple. That's how that uh, reads to us. The- sabotage to not let you just allow people willy nilly into the country. That's sabotage. You're weird. By the way, it was 2,500 after the court order. It was 6,000 before. So you can believe the reporting or not. We know the 6,000 number is accurate. The Biden administration allowed 6,000 people into the country without any court date to determine whether or not their asylum claim was legit. Done. That's what the Biden administration did. So Title VIII has teeth. As I said, it has existed uh, since 1940. I said the 40s, but I think it's actually 1940. It is the system we use. You can argue that system needs to be revamped and a series of other things. But it's not like it's a newly created subject. It's not a newly created bit of, of, of ruling. It's what we do. But in the hands of ideological people, it's toothless. This is what we're seeing from Mayorkas. The same Mayorkas who, when confronted with the data that that the left is telling you that they don't believe in borders. Look at what the ACLU is saying. He's like, oh, no, just just not true. Absolutely not true. But then goes about saying, goes about saying that we're not really doing anything uh, about the border. We're not actually taking a stronger position. And Jonathan Carl is a bit incredulous and pushes back. Well, uh, in, in, in one critical sense, it, it, it is the same as the Trump policy. Absolutely right? not. Well, well the Trump policy was that you, you had to first apply for asylum uh, in, 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 a th- in, in another country. Uh, if you were coming from from South of Mexico, that's exactly what you're doing. No, that is, that is that is not Explain. actually. Yes. So first of all, President Biden has led the greatest expansion of lawful pathways ever. What our rule provides is that an individual must access those lawful pathways that we have made available to them. If they have not, then they must have uh, sought relief in one of the countries through which they have traveled and been denied. And if they haven't done either, it's not a ban on asylum, but they have a higher threshold of proof that they have to meet. That is a presumption of ineligibility that can be overcome. It is not a ban. And so I disagree with that in every regard. As I just said, 
Look how easy they're trying to make it. John Lynn Carl says, well, what you're doing is just like the Trump administration. He says, absolutely not. And it turns out that he's kind of right. He wants you to know that you it doesn't matter if you do this, do that, or do the other. You have to come through a lawful port of entry, but you might come to a port of entry or an area that, that you're coming through illegally. You have to have applied for asylum in another country. But let's say you didn't apply uh, in, in another asylum. All it does is upgrade the threshold. But since the threshold is discretionary, what does it matter? So indeed, the rules are like the Trump administration. The difference is the Trump administration actually held to the rules. The Biden administration, look at all the pathways Joe Biden has created. The Biden administration doesn't want to hold to a rule. They want to find a way to let you in. He just said it. He just explained how it's different than the Trump administration because we will still let you in. The border crossings are down over the last few days. Me, I'm thrilled about this, if only because it gives Border Patrol a bit of a respite, maybe a breather, get their strength. And maybe it's because of all those tactical forces from Texas. Maybe it's because of those razor wire fences that were erected. Maybe. Maybe it's because people coming across the border don't quite know how these laws work yet, so they haven't figured out that maybe it'll be equally as easy. But we were averaging over 10,000 a day in the days prior to Title 42. So maybe they see something differently than we do. That said, the border is still a mess. That said, the border is still a dangerous place. We'd all be better off if border crossings were down, down to 4,200, down to 2,200, down to 1,200. We would, they're not at 1,200, they're at 4,200 at one of the last counts. I believe that was Saturday. We would be better off. How great that would be to see things cut by well in half. But I don't believe that's the future. I believe that the more you hear people like Alejandro Mayorkas speak, the more people realize, oh, oh, it's still open. Okay, let's go to work. Because Mayorkas just told you it's still open. And the ACLU has told you that they don't believe in borders at all. That's the latest. And we will keep our eyes on the subject. Keep it here. I'm Tony Katz. RFK Jr. says he can beat Biden in the 2024 primary. We're trying to get that interview. We're trying to make that come together. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. It's good to be with you. I don't know if Robert F. Kennedy Jr. can beat Joe Biden. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is a Democrat running in the Democratic primary. He's running for president. And in the last poll, he has 19% support. The Democrats have said, we're not doing any debates. Joe Biden is the leader of the Democratic Party. We're not doing any debates for for, for uh, the nomination. Forget about it. What happens if RFK Jr., Robert F. Kennedy Jr., gets to 35%? What happens if he gets to, let's just call it 30%, you know, amongst friends? They're really going to ignore him? I don't quite know how. But does he really have a chance when he says things like, yeah, the CIA murdered my father? His father would be Robert F. Kennedy, brother of Robert, yeah, brother, a brother of uh, uh, John Kennedy. 
I mean, you you say this, do people take this seriously or do they think, my gosh, crackpot? And why is he polling so well? Well, he's not a believer in um, COVID insanity. He's not a believer in forced, um, uh, in, you know, vaccination. He's also a believer in climate change. So no one should think he's a conservative. He's not. But it's certainly interesting uh, that he's putting together what so far can be considered a serious run. Let's see what happens three months from now. Meanwhile, you take a look at what's going on with with rates I say rates, I mean the markets. Uh, the Dow is down 36 right now. The Nasdaq is up 47. Don't pay any attention to that. Pay attention to this. The president of the Fed in Atlanta, Rafael Bostic, says he doesn't foresee rate cuts at least through 2023. And Paul Tudor Jones, who is a hedge fund manager, says the Federal Reserve has finished raising interest rates. So you've got the billionaire class saying the, there's no more interest rate increases, good times are ahead, and you've got a Fed president of the Atlanta Federal Reserve saying we're not going to be cutting rates at least through 2023, which doesn't leave out the possibility that they might still raise rates. We've been making the argument here, I've been making the argument, that this, this, uh, this economy is not good and doesn't have a good future. I would like to be wrong. I would love to be wrong. I'd be through I'll come to you and be like, "Guys, I was so wrong. Everything is absolutely amazing in this economy. It's just terrific." I think that people like Paul Tudor Jones saying that the Fed is done is hope. And I get where that comes from. Jerome Powell doesn't want to be raising rates. Jerome Powell is not only concerned um, with uh, the ongoing inflation, but he's concerned that if he raises rates, you're going to have regional banks that play too much in the bonds, just like Silicon Valley Bank did. The rates go up, the bonds uh, have less value, and they're going to have issues. You've had three pretty big defaults. Massive defaults. If this was Trump as president, it's all we'd hear about are the bank defaults, the bank defaults, the bank defaults. The stuff is happening even if the press doesn't talk about it. You raise the interest rates again, you might have another bank default. So, of course, they're worried about it. And guys like Paul Tudor Jones might be thinking, ah, they won't risk it. So, therefore, we're in an okay place. I don't know. He knows more about the markets than I do. I'll give him that. But I know that while the price of eggs has come down, it's still way higher. That the price of bread is still higher. That milk is still higher. Best of luck buying a steak. Never mind, you're still paying over a dollar more for gas than you were when Biden took office. And all these things mean you don't have expendable income. And if you did, you wouldn't find things on the shelves in all your stores still. So... Why would I think that rates won't go up? I'm Tony Katz.
Now, Ron DeSantis was in Iowa, and Donald Trump didn't make it to Iowa, and I will explain what I think we learned from Iowa. In the meantime, Ron DeSantis continues to make waves. Oh, there's no doubt that Donald Trump has been making waves as well. Uh, But when it comes to how he's dealing with things in Florida, he's hitting the notes and it can't be denied. So the first bill that I'll be signing is SB 266. Um, And what this does is reorient our universities uh, back to their traditional mission. And part of that traditional mission is to treat people as individuals, not to try to divvy them up based on any type of superficial characteristics. Um, We're going to elevate merit and achievement uh, above identification with certain groups. And in order to do that, uh, we had to uh, look at this new concept, relatively new concept, called diversity, equity, and inclusion. And um, I didn't know much. I mean, this is something relatively recent. I mean, Chris Ruvo can talk about when this really started to percolate. I think it it had probably been there a few years ago, but then kind of the post-BLM rioting and the George Floyd summer 2020, I think you saw it really take off. And on its face, I mean, I see, when I see diversity, I think like, you know, different viewpoints have a robust academic discussion in the university isn't that what they're for in reality what this concept of DEI has been is to attempt to impose orthodoxy uh, on the university and not even necessarily in the classroom but through the administrative apparatus of the university itself and that manifests itself in a number of different ways Uh, but this has basically been used as a veneer to impose an ideological agenda Uh, and that is wrong And in fact, if you look at the way this has actually been implemented across the country, uh, DEI is is better um, viewed as standing for discrimination, exclusion, and indoctrination. And that has no place in our public institutions. So, said differently, DEI is out in Florida public schools. And so it should be. I'm talking about public colleges here. Washington Post, uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed a bill into law Monday, barring the state's colleges and universities from spending money on DEI programs and limiting how race can be discussed in many courses. Well, I'm not sure so much about that part of it. Remember, it's the Washington Post. But we haven't figured out that DEI is just outright bigotry? That schools brag about the size of their DEI departments to show how good they are so they don't get attacked? You really think it takes 83 people to be part of the DEI program? Come now. We know what it is. We know it's bigotry. We know that people have these positions to show others, look how good we are, please don't hurt us. Wait till you learn that people uh, across the country have been asked onto the board of this company and that company and this institution and that foundation only because of the color of their skin. Only because of the color of their skin and only because of whatever happens to be between their legs. As someone explained it to me, when they, they have a friend who was asked, hey, can you be a part of this board? And they're like, well, do you really need me to do the work or is this just black up? I'm sorry. Did you just say black up? 
Did did you actually just say black up? Yes. That's how they referred to it. They know they're only being asked to be on boards because of the color of their skin. And if there's a good opportunity, yeah, sure. Otherwise, no, thank you. Because that's the only reason they're being asked. Nobody wants their expertise. Nobody wants their skill set. Just let's put on the veneer that we're doing something good. If you're a company or an institution that added three black people to your, your, your board, how is that any different than blackface? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know why people do it. You would add people based on their skill set, regardless of the color of their skin, if you were serious about, I don't know, building an institution or building a company. At least that's what I would do. That's what I would do. I wouldn't be like, I need two of those and two of those and one of those and three of those. That's crazy talk. That's not how you build a company. It's not how you build a board. It's not how you do anything. You put on people who offer something, a skill set, a thought process. DEI doesn't offer any of that. DEI doesn't offer inclusion. It doesn't offer diversity of thought. And equity is full-on bigotry. Equity is hate in the educational world. Equity is hate when you talk about it as what it is, which is wealth redistribution. So good on Ron DeSantis putting an end to this. And what his supporters are going to say is this is actual action. This isn't talking about draining the swamp. This is draining it. That's what they're going to say. I'll get more into what took place in Iowa. Because there's some realities there. And this whole idea that, you know, the, the DeSantis person is saying Trump can't. Well, you don't know that he can't win a general. And the, the Trump people saying that uh, only Trump can. Well, that's not true either. And everybody's just they're They're playing in worlds of angry for clicks and hits. And it's just so pathetic. Let's put it to the side for a moment. Let's go over to New York, where Daniel Penny is being charged in the murder of Jordan Neely. And the way Jordan Neely is being discussed is that, oh, this poor black man who was just mentally ill and wouldn't hurt anybody. It was wrong for Daniel Penny to think this guy was a threat and put him in a chokehold and kill him. And he only did it because Jordan Neely was black and Daniel Penny is white and he sees black people as a threat. You want to talk about bigotry. People who share the story like that are the bigots. Uh, Jordan Neely was mentally ill, as described. Jordan Neely had a very long rap sheet. Jordan Neely was screaming and yelling at people on a train. Jordan Neely was threatening people and intimidating people on a train. Jordan Neely said he needed money and demanded money on a train. And Jordan Neely was violent. Because if you don't think threats of, I'm going to do this and that if you don't give me this, you're going to pay me. I'm sick and tired of being poor. You owe me. If you don't think that's a threat, when it's screamed in your face, you're unserious. Let's just, let's start there. I figure we could start there and work our way up. Daniel Penny decided he had to intervene. This retired Marine put Jordan Neely in a chokehold. Jordan Neely died. The story 
gain traction after leftists like Representative Ocasio-Cortez realized that this wasn't getting enough traction and they could immediately go down the line of racism this and hate that and why aren't we doing more for for uh, uh, the, these people here and there and push more for government intervention. And it allowed uh, the, the bigots and the people who push bigotry to say, look at what this white man did to a black man without any context. But then again, they're only following the cues from President Biden, who at Howard University, where he was giving the commencement, said as follows. To stand up against the poison of white supremacy, as I did my inaugural address to a single out as the most dangerous terrorist threat to our homeland is white supremacy. I'm not saying this because I'm at a black HBCU. I say wherever I go. First of all, all HBCUs are black. It's a historically black college or university. So black HBCU is redundant. But it's Joe Biden. You're lucky he's standing upright. White supremacy is the most dangerous terrorist threat to our homeland. The white supremacists wear matching khaki pants and carry around tiki torches. The Chinese send spy balloons. Set up police stations. And Lord only knows the level of spying that takes place through whatever technology they have in the country. But sure. It's it's the white supremacists. Now... He did say terrorist threat. I think uh, that the Taliban is very insulted that they were not somehow at least in the top three, considering all the U.S. hardware they now have. But this is a radical level of pandering. But leads down the line of, my gosh, what what uh, this guy did, what Daniel Penny did is just despicable. We have to fight back. And so you have people trying to stop the subways from working, and they're engaging in this protest. And people are saying, um, I don't think you understand what happened here. And I'm saying that I don't think people understand what happened here on both sides. Jordan Neely was threatening everybody on a police on on a on a train car. And if you listen to these leftists talk while they all make the claim that this should have been done and that should have been done, they all want to say, well, if you see somebody like this on a train, you know what you do? You simply you simply move train cars. You don't have to engage uh, with him. It's best that you ignore the crazy person. I thought they wanted us to be kind and giving and loving and caring. That's what I thought they wanted to give up. They, they wanted us to do. This is what we should do. But no, no, no. That's not what they say. They say. That, look, we've all been in this situation. You know what you do? You, 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 you change the car on the train. On Monday afternoon, one can't help but wonder if he'd still be alive today. Look, 
Any New Yorker, myself included, can tell you about a time they may have felt uncomfortable on a subway car. It's part of life in New York City. But in that instance, what most of us do is simply get up and move to the next car, possibly even call for help at the next stop. You do not take it upon yourself to put someone, someone who by all accounts did not put his hands on anyone that day in a deadly chokehold for 15 minutes. So you should get up and move when someone is engaged in threats. You shouldn't stop them. What if I'm somebody who doesn't have the physical ability to get up and move? I just get threatened? Daniel Penny decided that that wasn't enough and put Jordan Neely in a chokehold and Jordan Neely died. Two things have to be remembered here. Number one, if you decide that you need to get involved, you have to understand that that can come with ramifications. That can come with ramifications. Who amongst us thinks there's no ramifications for their actions? If you think there are no ramifications, you're like the kind of person who, uh, I don't know, takes student loans and then thinks you don't have to pay them back. Right? That's, that's what it is. You have to accept that there could be ramifications for your actions. On the other side of it comes the realization that stop telling me about mental illness this and society that. You're not allowed to threaten people on a train no matter who you are. And it shouldn't be life in New York. Maybe people should stop just pulling out their camera phone, uh, their camera on their phone and start videotaping and they should do something about the damn problem. The problem would go away. Or at least it would get diminished. You don't get to just threaten people on a train. What do you mean it's just life in New York? What kind of crap are you willing to accept? That's right. You're the guy who goes to the next train car because you don't want to confront the problem, deal with the problem, or get the problem to stop. You're above it all. You let it be somebody else's problem. You know, the old person who can't move and is in too much fear to move, you won't even stand up for them. $2 million have been raised for the defense of Daniel Penny. Governor DeSantis has gotten behind this and a host of other people. And people are like, how dare you raise money for this murderer? What, he's not entitled to a defense? There's a story here. There's a story here regarding the kind of threat Jordan Neely was because he was a threat. doesn't matter if you don't want to say he was a threat. Who gives a damn what you want to say? The facts are the facts. And we're not going to ignore them because you don't, it doesn't fit your uh, ideological desire and your desire to claim the whole thing is bigotry when it's not. It's on Give, Send, Go, Daniel Penny, Legal Defense Fund. It's raised over $2 million. The guy's entitled to a defense. Of course he's entitled to a defense. But when you engage... You got to accept that there's, you're responsible for the engagement. You have to accept that. This did not go, I'm sure, the way Daniel Penny thought. That he was charged? Well, one could argue it didn't have to happen, but it's Alvin Bragg, and he's the Manhattan DA, the same guy who charged Trump. So no one's surprised that politically Daniel Penny was charged. But no one should think that Daniel Penny shouldn't be responsible for his actions. I don't actually mind that there's a trial.
I don't mind that people have given $2 million for his defense. And I think his defense is legitimate. Let the trial take place. He's got lawyers. Let's hope the system does its job. I'm Tony Katz. California wants you to know it's bigger than better than ever. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. This is their budget deficit. They don't want you to know that their budget deficit is bigger than better than ever. Um, they have a $32 billion budget deficit, which is $10 billion more than previously estimated. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. Um, I don't know how they're going to figure that out. How much more can you tax the people of California? The answer is, oh, a lot. You know they want to tax people who used to live there? They want to tax people who've moved their businesses out of there? They are, they really believe they can exit tax and control and do all the things. They shouldn't look at reducing spending. They shouldn't look at reducing services and be like, people, you got to handle yourself. They only see, well, you can give a little bit more. Honestly, I still have friends in California. My time in California was wonderful. But at this stage of the game, you're on your own. You decided to stay. You decided to stay. What do you want from me? They bought their tickets. They knew what they were getting into. I say let them crash. This is Tony Katz today. Find everything. TonyKatz.com.